Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tom Hutch podcast where I interview individuals who have made a successful career within the music industry to find out how they got to where they are and any tips or advice that they have for musicians of any level and at any stage of their own careers. In this episode I talk with Tommy Emerton on both Instagram and Twitter at Tommy Emerton spelt T-O-M-M-Y E-M-M-E-R-T-O-N, who is currently the guitarist on the Book of Mormon in the West End and also the BBC Big Band. Within the West End, Tommy has also held chairs on the Rocky Horror Show, Fame, Jersey Boys and Hair, as well as playing on many others over the years. He's played live with many amazing artists, including Catherine Jenkins and Al Giraud, and plays in studios for sessions around London. Tommy is also involved with a project called Albert Snoyd with drummer Pete Zeldman, who used to play with Steve Vai, which we do talk about in this episode, and also has a blog called Pretty Mental Music, which is about, quote, getting stuff done. There's some amazing stuff on there, and you can check it out at tommyemerton.com. In this episode, we talk about how to be productive with your time, a musician's life on the road, the theatre industry today, and advice for getting involved, learning your craft as a musician, and much more. Tommy has a wealth of experience across many parts of the music industry, and we touched on several of these during our chat, but also dive deep into Tommy's take on practice and explains some amazing tips that anyone can use straight away. We met up in the Groucho Club in Soho, so there is some background noise of people talking and moving around, but this was a really enjoyable conversation for me, and I got a lot out of it, and I hope you will too. So please enjoy this chat with Tommy Emerton. How did you start? From, are you from Wales originally? From Cardiff originally. Well, Barry specifically. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, uh, how did you start? Like, what did you do? When did you start the, playing guitar? So the early... You want to start from the absolute beginning? Yeah, why not? Um, well, I was a drummer, initially. Oh, really? I was From birth, I was obsessed with the drums and drummers my, my earliest memories that I remember quite vividly are you know, hitting pots and pans <laughs> in front of videos of Queen and wow. uh, Billy Joel um, and I was bought a little kit when I was really really young um, and I suppose my first proper idol was um, was Nick Mason Pink Floyd I wanted to be I wanted to be him I wanted to be in Pink Floyd um, we had this video um, of uh, Pink Floyd live uh, Delicate Sound of Thunder live at the Nassau Coliseum for the um, uh, what was that record called uh, this is 90s Floyd's you know, Post Waters um, a Momentary Lapse of Reason that was the that was the tour they did. It was called um, okay. Delicate Sound of Thunder, and this video is epic, man. I used to, I'd, I'd watch that thing, you know, like twice a day. Really, you know, keep rewinding. It was, you know, VHS back then. Yeah. Um, and play, yeah, play along, play along with it, and um, that that was what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and my younger brother started having classical guitar lessons, and purely to even things up with him 
I started having classical guitar lessons <laughs> as well. So you started guitar as like a rivalry? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, me, my brother's only about a year and a half younger than me. Right. So tops. how old were you when you started doing it? Oh man. Um, Guitar was was a lot later actually. That was I think it was about eight, seven or eight. Okay. So having I mean, classical guitar lessons. It doesn't sound too late to me. There's some things because I, I know many people start much later than that sometimes, don't they? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Especially with guitar players, I think. Really. Yeah, I think so. so uh, well, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to generalise, but the guys that spring to mind more so in the rock world I suppose yeah. Dave Gilmore's Richie Blackmore's Gary Moore's um, they all they t- tend to be teenagers don't they I think I think Steve Vai was about 10 or 11 right um, when he got his first guitar yeah yeah I was yeah seven or seven or eight classical guitar and I suppose I always approached it as a stepping stone. I knew I never wanted to be a classical guitar player. Okay. Um, and yeah, so the, the, it was it was always it was always like an academic preparation for a life of what I thought was going to involve being a session musician. Right. And I'd, I'd heard this this term, you know, session yeah. musician. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose it was you know the, those people existed. You know, in the late eighties and nineties, when early nineties, when I was started to practice seriously, um, there was there was work. Yeah. Um, that was that was a, that was a viable and realistic um, potential job. Like purely doing sessions. Yeah. Just like yeah. Five days a week. Or, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I didn't really know who any session musicians were. Yeah. Um, this is pre-internet, obviously. Right. Um, yeah. We, 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 we just hear. I'd, I'd heard from other people that oh, you know, there were these guys that play on all these records. You know, they're not in bands specifically. They're hired by an artist, and you know, they they make records for people. And I suppose in a similar sense to. You know, Floyd Post Waters. You know, they they hired a, a guys in to join the band to do the tours and things like that. So Guy Pratt, bass player, another hero of mine. In fact, I got to play with him here on the last Gang Show gig. Um, yeah, I suppose they they class. You know, that's that's part of being a session musician. I suppose, isn't it? Um, you know, hired in by by an artist or a group that's already. Um, in existence. That seems to be much more like the way it seems to be going at the moment these days. Well, this this is the thing. So that I think that I don't think that the, the term has been diluted. It's been denuded of its meaning. Mm. Now. Um, I don't. I don't think. I don't think session musicians really exist anymore. There's. I mean, there's a handful of guys. Um, maybe two or three guitar players in this country that can make a living purely from doing sessions yeah, so and and by, by sessions I mean recording commercial music yeah you know that's I suppose that's the the, the purists definition of what it is to be a session musician um, you know John Paracelli Adam Goldsmith um, they I mean, but you, you know they they do other stuff as well 
you know, it's not just making right. Mitch Dalton would be the other guy as well. Okay. I suppose he's the he's the daddy of um, of the guys that are still around working. Um, yeah, I suppose they can, they can they can make a living purely from you know playing on films, jingles, you know, the odd um, uh, project for an artist or something. Um, but now, but now you hear my generation and younger talking about doing sessions and things like that what they mean is oh I've been booked to go and do a gig <laughs> right so it's like the time because everyone I talk to about this like session, it seems to be a big thing because most people are like the session world is dead yeah. it's not really happening anymore so people's like definition of session mm. like you're saying that you're curious definition like that's that's not really a thing that's what the, that's what the term means originally means, so meant. Yeah. Now. yeah. Yeah. It's it's be, it's been diluted, di- um, denuded of, of of meaning. And I, I know some people, uh, Irish trad music, people that get together and do you know jam sessions or informal gigs. I think there's in that tradition they've called those things sessions okay. for a lot longer than. Um, you know, guys that go and do, um, you know, quite famous pop gigs, quite famous pop artists for very little money in big stadiums. Yeah. You know, that's um, it's not it's not really a session um, in the orig- in the original sense. And yeah, and it's you know, that's the reality is, um, it's not a viable career option anymore to to make a living um, in studios. Right. It's um, no, we have this. I mean, that's 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 a sad thing. Um, yeah. You know, I think about the, my heroes, guys like Jay Graydon, Steve Lukather, um, Paul Jackson Jr., um, yeah. the guitar players, well, and you know, uh, you know, drummers as well. You know, um, Jr. and Vinnie. Yeah. Um, you know, guys that you know, huge chunks of their career have been you know playing on other people's records. You know, making hits. Yeah. Um, it seems to be those. Um, to my, my vision of it is like those guys who did do it. They still do do it, but there's not really. I guess the guys that the book them maybe are the ones that have always booked them. But then there's not yeah. many many people doing that these days behind them. Yeah. Any younger at the moment. So yeah. Kind of. It's in there. Those those artists still doing all that stuff. Yeah, and even and even then, it's um, you know they're doing it remotely now. Mm, yeah, that's a massive thing. You know, the guys the guys in LA will have their home studio set up. It's the same as here, you know. Um, you know Adam Goldsmith, you know, he's he's got his home studio set up. He does you know commercial recordings from home. Yeah. You know, it's um, there's no there's no. There's no longer any need to lug amps to a studio, even. Yeah. You know, we've got you know really good digital modelling gear that people are using at home, and it you know it sounds pretty much like a loud, real amplifier that's been mic'd up beautifully in a beautiful room. Yeah. Um, so, so do, you do, do you do any of that yourself? Any of that kind of? Very yeah, very little. Um, it's um, I do I, I, you know commercial recording. You know, pr- proper sessions account for you know probably about five or six percent of my income. Right. You know it's the, it's still, it's the smallest still, part. Still a few though. Yeah, it's okay. It, it goes. Yeah, it's well. Maybe one a month. It probably averages out mm. at 
um, it goes it goes in it goes in waves. Yeah. There was a you know a couple of months ago I had um, had a fortnight where I did quite a few, hmm. which was unprecedented. Right. You know that's the way it goes sometimes though. You know sometimes yeah. there'll be a block of of things and not necessarily like the same projects. You know, doing a couple of days, but diff- different things. It's you know, it's yeah. I mean, how's it work for you? Do you have like one like producer or like one company that you work for? Is it? Does it not really vary? There's there, there there are a few um, few people that book the same type of chaps to do. Well, there's I'll give you the the, the main example. Uh, Rick Clark, um, who works for a company called Silver Screen. Uh, they make. Um, Sandalikes of old TV and film music. That's part of what they do. They do loads of stuff apart from that, um, including um, uh, you know looking after bands, you know, producing their records and, and doing distribution and all that sort of stuff. But the stuff I've done for him and that country have involved, um, and these are really fun sessions as well. Um, usually large ensemble as well, you know, big bands. Um, uh, with a few other instruments, um, he tends to do the strings in Prague, but the the, the the big band stuff and you know rhythm section, yeah. keyboards and stuff are done here. And so that's done the, like the proper old way, like you go into like it's usually Angel Road Studios. Angel. Yeah. yeah, it's usually Angel, and um, <laughs> it's really really good fun. Quite challenging because the guy that does the charts, he does these laser precision takedowns. Of, really? of old TV and film, so they're you know they're they're very precise. There's so a lot of information on the page. Exactly. Yeah, and and to to compound the difficulty, um, uh, Rick is a guitarist as well. He went to the Guitar Institute, so oh, he right. knows exactly what he you wants. Can't get away with it. No, there's no hiding. So wow. that's um, so th- that's I really look forward to this. We've got one on the 8th of September actually, so a couple of days time. Mm. Uh, Rick lives in New York now, but he's back. Uh, to do this this project, I'm presuming it'll be another chunk of it'll be an album of, of you know, stuff for library or they, I think they make a killing on on iTunes, you know, releasing really? recreations of old TV and film music. Well, I mean, if, if instead of you know, if people can see something for 50p instead of 75p, <laughs> and, they, and they don't know what the difference is, yeah, you know, I think that's 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 a, that's a strong incentive, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. For a lot of people, and and also they're really good, and they, and you know they sound better than the originals a lot, of, a lot of the time. Well, that'd probably be the point, really, wouldn't it? In a way. Possibly, I think the point is just to make money. But. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because a lot of like it seems to be sessions, like all that stuff. There are very few artists kind of do it that way, or like they don't produce stuff as often. So it seems to be like library music is massive. Like the more I talk to you about it, the more I realise that it's, it's huge, like part of the industry. Yeah. Like the library music side of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do, like you're saying, a lot of your sessions are doing library music and all that. Yeah. And then like, do you, you, know, you must know a lot of people. Like, I mean, do you compose any yourself as well? No, I don't. I, no, I don't. I don't do that. It's, um, it's it's something I might get into. I have to confess, I'm, I'm somewhat of a luddite when it comes to. Technology. Uh, I have. I've never f- felt much of an urge to really get the, you know, the basics of recording done. I've got a simple home setup. Yeah. Um, I can barely get Logic 
working. Really? Uh, yeah. That's really interesting because guitar is like you know you have so much like pedals and all that stuff. Yeah. Like, as a drummer, I don't touch electronics at all, so I don't yeah. understand that at all. But that's that's really interesting. Well, even with the electronic that. side of things, the man with as you say with the pedals and processing yeah, side of being a guitar player, the simpler the better for me. Really. Yeah, I've, I, I get paralysed by the amount of choice. The more parameters there are to tweak, the more overwhelmed I get, and my my perfectionism pa yeah stops me from getting anything done. So I prefer to buy gear that has you know two or three knobs on it. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and has you're not gonna turn up with like. 20 pedals and like well, I've got, I've got, I've got shitloads of pedals, yeah. but I, but I'll only take, you know, I try to do gigs with, you know, a distortion pedal, a volume pedal if I really have to, and a, and some delay, right. and I'm happy with 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 that. Okay. Um, uh, I've, I mean, I've got, I've got the switching systems, I've got you know, loads of digital gear and stuff like that, and yeah, yeah, just it's just too much hard work. <laughs> just distracts um, from. Else well, it's the, the, the setting up of this stuff is, I think, the, the, the main thing that pushes me away from it, and this, this, this links with um, the studio thing as well, is that I find that it, 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 it's, I'm sacrificing my valuable practice time. Um, and... And I'm open to the possibility that that'll change. And I, and I, th I think at some point I will have to take the plunge and really get a good home setup. Right. Um, sounding good, rather. Get, getting yeah, yeah. getting it set up to. Uh, because at the moment it's it's I'm using it more as just a writing tool. Okay. Um, and uh, and a practice tool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it would be it's 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 silly to have such a gaping hole in um, in in my business as well as, as yeah. practice. Well, I mean, you're doing incredibly well, even with if you think it's a hole. You've been doing so well with that, anyway. That yeah, it's, mean... it's a question of it's a question of priorities, isn't it? And, and yeah. you know, if when, and I think you know, the older you get and the busier you get, you have to you have to triage everything you know what what do you want most immediately in your playing yeah um, you know be honest about those things and allocate time and effort accordingly sure and for me at the moment it's getting I want to be really good at playing jazz right um, so that's that's the bulk of what I practice okay that's interesting so I was going to say we've gone off, off topic from miles ago but, um, it's fine you went back you studied we go, we go back so you, yeah, yeah. you learned classical guitar and then you're in Wales and then you came to uh, London to yeah study? so yeah, that, that, that was always the intention um how did you know about it? Because a lot of people are unaware. Well, when I was, uh, um, uh, I won this competition when I was a teenager um, for electric guitar players. It's called the Matthew Pritchard Award or something like that. I sent a demo tape to um, uh, what was then called Guitar Institute in Acton. Because uh, this this guy Sean Baxter, who I idolised, was 
the head honcho there and the prize was you get to, you get to spend a week there and have lessons with him and loads of other teachers and use the facilities and it was all paid for by the musicians union they give you a year's membership bought your train ticket gave you a lot of cash put you up in digs it was, it was wicked right it sounds amazing yeah it was great and this is while I was I was still doing my A-levels at this point right and um yeah, so basically I bunked off school for a week. Um, around, the t- around the time that, I think it was getting to crunch time actually, around the time that the exams were about to kick off. Really? Um, so some teachers weren't particularly happy, but wow. fuck that, who cares about that shit? Um, uh, and that, I mean, I, I always knew that I wanted to go to London. My parents lived here, worked here in the 70s. Uh, a lot of other family members um, and so I'd heard the stories I'd heard about places like Ronnie Scott's and about the music scene and um, it was impressed on me that you know this is really the centre of, of everything music wise in this country um, there's, I mean there's, there's stuff going on everywhere but if you want to make a, 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 a living as a jobbing musician I think this is the only place to be um, and on top of that, I always had this romantic attraction and fascination with this place. You know, being brought up here as a kid and being mystified by Soho. Right. You know, really um, enhanced the pull that this place has. Okay, so you, you always wanted to come always to wanted, Always wanted to come here. And the thing that I was... Um, wasn't so sure about was studying jazz because um, right, okay. again my, my my allegiance at that time was to rock music I wanted to be a, you know principally a rock guitar player that, that was doing commercial recordings you know, playing with artists making records all that sort of stuff so you still had the session musician yeah like, a- a- absolutely but, but I was I'd, I'd been I'd spent about three years getting into jazz m- m- from from an interesting perspective. Um, t- t- two of my f- favourite guitar players early on were Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. Right. You know, rock guys, um, shredders. Um, I was obsessed, you know. Was, I think from about the age of eleven or twelve, that's I, that's when I started practicing seriously. You know, like staying up all night. In, you know, that is quite young, actually. Yeah, yeah. But, but simply because I wanted to emulate Vi. You know, I'd heard about the um, you know the, the mammoth ten-hour practice routines. My my teacher at the time in Cardiff, Paul Goodyear. Um, he told me about all this stuff. He was showing me the stuff that Vi practiced. There was this thing that, that Vi published in a magazine a long time ago, which was basically um, the the plan of his 10-hour routine. It shows you everything that he used to practice, and I try and get through all of that sort of stuff in in a very, but in a very immature way. I was I was purely concerned with technique. It's still it's still a very intense thing to do oh, at, ma- at that ma- age. Yeah. Like. Ma- massively. I mean, and you did that for you said you did that like consistently for about three years. Well, as much as I could. I mean, I yeah. also liked sleeping as well and, and, <laughs> and, and drinking at that point as well. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, and I was, but I was, in, and I was into school as well. You know, I was, I was still quite academic. Um, um, 
I, I, not in the sense that I was, you know, particularly up for going to les lessons and things like that. I saw that as eating into my practice time. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was very into reading stuff. That's a huge part of my life. And that's you know that was that was something else I. I I, I dabbled with I toyed with the idea of doing a philosophy degree instead of going to music college um, still, it's, it's still something I'd like to do it's, it's you know it's you know a philosophy or English degree because um, well, I know you do you do a blog as well right yeah I mean I've, I've, I've been inactive for, for quite a while now um, partly um, because of laziness and making excuses and procrastinating but also because I've you know I've had a busy spate of either working or holiday yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. um, and it's man it was hard work doing that blog but I, f I found it really really helpful so what I did was I used it as a tool to you know basically kick me up the arse to, to get a little EP done to actually do some writing and, and um, yeah to force me to do a load of stuff and essentially try to apply some of the organisational and motivational stuff I'd learned from Tim Ferriss. Have you checked him out? Yes, yeah, four-hour work week. Precisely. Yeah, so it was Mike Outram, you know, the guitar player, amazing guitar player. Um, another one of my heroes, who also lives down the road from me in Ealing. Um, he, intru he introduced me to the Tim Ferriss books. He said, you've, you've got to start thinking about this stuff. This is amazing this is kind of transformative stuff to yeah. apply to your practice and even more so than for our work week is for our chef okay. that's I, I, I think I think that's that's the one man really? uh, yeah absolutely um, so so the, the blog was effectively um, an, an application of the rules that he suggests so the, the, I suppose the overarching one being tracking everything that you do okay. if you want to control the uh, the variables that either lead to success or failure you need to track everything you do so I started keeping your practice diaries you know I'd, I'd, I'd always kept a loose practice diary but I, I from you know from a couple of years ago it became very, very systematic. Um, and that's such a valuable tool, man. Super, super valuable. It's, it keeps you honest. You know, if you, if you, um, you know, on a, on a you know, Sunday afternoon, look at your diary for the week ahead and, and fill out your, your diary in the, you know, realistic places where you can get practice done. You know, you've got all your your work things, your your you know real life commitment stuff that you have to do as well. Work your practice around that, and um, again, be sensible about sensible about um, what you do where. So, if you've got five minutes before something, you know, if I'm if I'm teaching a college and I've got you know five minutes before a, a student turns up. I'm not going to start writing a, a composition in that five minutes. It's not going to be an effective use of five minutes. Well, unless, you know, that's, that's, that's not a hard and fast rule. Inspiration might strike and you might come up with a riff or something in five minutes. Fine. Record it on your phone. Done. But usually what I'll do is I can, you know, I can, I can do my five-minute pattern practice in that time. It's another thing I got from Outram was... Um, uh, tipping the balance in my practice away from preparing 
to do playing and actually playing music, practicing to doing music. That is a big distinction. Isn't it? It's a it's a massive yeah. and I, I, you know a, a huge part of my practicing life um, has been massively inefficient because I've been preparing to do instead of actually doing. So what I mean by that is spending hours on end trying to get patterns through all keys, you know, really mammoth tasks that just burns you out um, and it's really something that I think you should be doing piecemeal in a consistent way and Mike said, why don't you try doing five minutes a day of something don't try and get through all keys on something, if it's something unfamiliar you know, set yourself realistic or see if you can get through three keys in five minutes you know, repeat it the next day see if you can get through another three keys on day three and do it, you know, build it up piecemeal instead of burning yourself out and be really rigorous with this because that the the insistence on capping these things at five minutes and I, cons- I consider that type of practice to be a, a bit of an addiction for me like it's in my OCD like takes five minutes on a timer well I mean, I mean pattern practice in general is something I'm quite obsessive about and um, I find it's it's meditative, you know. It's 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 a very satisfying experience for me. But, but there's huge negatives with that. You know, there's no music in that. It's very helpful, I and mean, there's huge. I, I think pattern practice is is essential. There's huge amounts of of valuable um, stuff that you can get that informs your improvising. I mean, look at my, Michael Brecker, probably my my current hero musician, the guy that I idolise the most. Um, you know, he's for me um, like the epitome of someone that has used pattern practice to an incredibly um, successful end. Um, because it, you end you end up with 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 music that has um, just these flowing, logical, motif-based um, ideas. That have this sense of coherence. You know, a, sol- a solo from him is 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 is, is glued together by um, this the, the by the ability to manipulate themes, and I think that comes from in large part from the type of pattern practice that he was doing. Right. And there's there's some really great. In fact, I'm, do- I'm I will put out a blog on this because there are a few lectures that you can see from Brecker. On YouTube, there's one North Texas, early 80s, and there's another one in a, at a Canadian university as well, um, where he talks about the way that he pattern practice, and loads of those guys did it the same way, like Dick Oates, um, Jerry Bagonzi, you know, taking not not um, just any seemingly um, arbitrary set of intervals. And, and playing them from the, from, the, from the lowest point on your instrument to the highest and then reversing it and then working out how many permutations of that you can do. And what it's doing is it's giving you control over, over melodic themes. Um, so when you're improvising, the idea is that instead of it coming from an academic, uh, rational type thing that's going to end up sounding very very cold and systematic and um, uh, 
and 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 patterny, uh, which which you don't want. You end up with um, just this really flowing um, sense of coherence. You know, in the, in the same way that um, you know we, we speak in in in. in sentences hopefully that make that make sense that are coherent you know and they 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 belong in you know larger frameworks and your paragraphs that that detail one concept one idea and i and i think that sort of practice gives you that conversational um sense of um you know the development of distinct ideas right so they you know they're, they're huge as benefits to that sort of practice but and do they do they do it in this similar way, like kind of restrictive time-wise? I I don't know. He doesn't. Talk, he, I, I don't think he's that. He was that specific on how long he would do that stuff for. Mm. Um, but I think the thing. Maybe. I I'll, I'd have to check. I don't remember him saying, "Oh, I did this for an hour and then moved yeah, on to something else." But I think the big thing to take from it, though, was that it was the smallest part of the day's practice. And yeah, and for a large part of my practice history, it's been the biggest part. I was going to say. So you end up you end up don't you don't practice any music. So now, by restricting yourself to five minutes, you um, you ensure that you're focusing on. What you're supposed to be doing, mm. you know, the, the 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 main course, if you like, yeah, you know, which is getting down to practicing doing music, mm. you know, and it's you know that's that's much that's much less uh, safe space, you know, pra really practicing to do music because it's because it's hard, and I think you know to you know to self-analyze why um, my sort of patterny type practice the academic side of things was dominant it's probably because it's you know it's safer you know you're secure in the fact that you know you can get through this whereas practicing improvising is tough yeah you know it's this um, you know you fuck things up a lot yeah it can be quite demoralizing um it's it's a it's a messy process you know getting down to um the business of, of doing music you know it's not it's it's not it's not a perfect um, rendition of, 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 of performance like, like pattern practice can be. Um, but that's, that's the point, because you, you, we have to go and do gigs, we have to go and improvise in front of people, and we have to get used to, to fucking things up. You know, not, not going for things that you, don't, that you don't make. Yeah. You know, that's part of the excitement of the music. So it's, it's, so, it, so it makes complete sense to um, to, to practice or, or to at least try to synthesize that experience in the practice room. You know, to going for it. Yeah. Uh, you have to get used to what that 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 mental state feels like. Otherwise, you're going to feel really out of your depth on stage. Yeah. So I know a lot of people, myself included, especially at college. You know, you, know, you can go into a practice room for an hour and you can do like. 90% of it as pattern practice like you say yeah. and you know technically you're, you're working on it you're doing stuff whatever yeah. and you come out after the hour and you like you don't really feel like you've done anything yeah you're, like yeah well your chops feel good there, there, there are there, there, yeah. is, there are superficial benefits I think from that sort of practice but I but they're not deep 
I think a lot of people get stuck. Yeah. Kind of like in a kind of repetitive cycle of doing that. Yeah. Not really knowing how to. Well, because 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 really. I, th- I think for a lot of us, you know, you know, by dint of being musicians that have signed up for you know four years of. <laughs> Um, of, of shutting yourself away in a dark room with with an instrument, you know. I think that a lot of us have, you know, compulsive tendencies, and you know, going going through a daily set of exercises is 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 like a you know a sort of observance. You know, it become it becomes habit very quickly, and um, and it, I I found it quite addictive. Um, so if you if you cap it to five minutes, the the other main benefit that Mike to- told me about was that well, what you're going to do is you're going to squeeze every drop of potential out of that five minutes. You're really going to focus. You really if you know if you if you're you know a big big into you know chops development and, and patney type stuff, then you're re- you're really going to. Um, take full advantage of every second there which you might not do if you've set aside an hour to do that yeah um, so that I mean I've been, I've been experimenting with that for a couple of years now and I've and it's it's had a transformative effect on my really? on my but yeah massively so it's interesting because like there's a couple of tutors I've had so uh Trevor Tompkins, yeah, when I was a and then James Madrid as well. Oh, I was in college with James. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was a first year when I was in my fourth year. Right, right, right. They were—they're both very big into the the whole thing of um, like um, uh, James is very much. He'll do exactly like you're saying. He'll just sit down for five minutes, do something, do it like really intensely for five minutes. Yeah. And go and make a cup of tea or something. Come back, do another five minutes. But yeah. Laser like focus. Yeah. And I know that Trev as well, he was saying to me that um, there's some research from Stanford that he always cites with, with stuff like this, saying that the brain, when you get to do, you do 45 minutes, and then right. after 45 minutes, your, your focus kind of trails off if you don't take a break. Right. So he's very much into that as well. He's like, kind of rather than sit down in an hour and do two things half an hour each, yeah. do like five lots of ten with a ten minute break oh absolutely well yeah I mean 45 minutes I think is massively optimistic I would say four to five minutes as being being the top it's um, it's because of habituation that's the problem so if you look at if you think of your um, uh, learning potential on a graph over time and your peak of productivity is going to be within the first two or three minutes, and then, the, then it drops the arse drops out of it straight away. Yeah. And I think a big part of this is to do with um, the problem of habituation. So the reason why the first few minutes of your practice are going to be most productive is because you have to. Um, you have to install this uh, I suppose a loose analogy would be this booting up software uh, to engage in the task so you're using there's there's much more processing power um, firing in your brain within the first few minutes and as as you start getting comfortable as as the habituation kicks in your your productivity drops out and it's the it's the reason why um, you know you can practice something you know, loads one day and you'll feel like you've got it under the fingers and then come back the next morning and it's, it's, it's disappears um, it's because um, this, the learning that you've done the, the day before is, is superficial 
so with with the five minute blocks thing um, the idea is that what you're practicing is you're practicing starting the task which is the hardest thing because we all know that don't we you t- you t- yeah. especially if it's a new, a, a new bit of information that you're working on it's like you're, it's baby steps to start off with um, like you're really struggling you're really having to think and um, and yes it gets comfortable after a while but it's that comfortable bit that you should be worried about so you're yeah. better off as you say instead of doing half an hour break it up into five minute chunks and you know when st- stand up look out the window for 30 seconds walk around the room and it's, be- it's better for your posture anyway if you're sitting down so, um, so there's, that, there's that thing of like it's, um, it's not how long you spend on a task I can't remember who said this or where I read it but it's not how long you spend on a task it's the amount of times that you relearn it like you're saying yeah, like you restart right. like going through that process again mm. so if you had half an hour doing one thing you spread that half an hour over five minute chunks over six days you'd probably be much better absolutely in the six days than you would have half an hour in one day Abs- absolutely and another good thing to add to that as well is instead of just doing so let's say you're um, let's say it's you're, you're working on your time and you're, you're so swing time like eighth note fail something like that and you've got um, you've got the click set to give you one click per bar um, on, an, on an off beat somewhere um, and you know you're really trying to you're working on the consistency of your of your eighth note. So you're you know you pick a tune. Um, you might want to play Cherokee or something like that. And um, set your timer. Get your metronome going. Five minutes of you know trying to play you know a couple of choruses. Um, and with without um, without your time phasing. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, five minutes is up um, maybe spend that time to you know write some observations about that in your practice diary uh, walk around the room look out the window go back and do something else you know totally different task maybe maybe something you know hearing based um, you know sit at the piano or something and um, you know, sing scales sing arpeggios something like that or may or in fact maybe you could link it to the tune that you're learning Maybe try and you know play play a walking bass line or something or just a root movement and maybe you know try and sing the thirds of each chord for five minutes. Really, really good practice. You know, pick a di- pick a different interval every day. You know, try and get the whole through the whole sequence singing the thirteenth of each chord or something. Yeah. So um, and in, and in, cycle that for an hour because um, it's again it's that the, the the most powerful learning that you're doing is in that fir- is is in starting. Of the process, so I think you know if you're if you're if you if you do that every day, man, you you know that's powerful learning, I think. Uh, and I and I I would I, I don't think you should be doing too many things at once. But certainly, you know, two two complementary but distinct activities in in one one practice session. I think that's that's a powerful way of of, of, of learning. Um, so if you're sitting, if you're sitting on a Sunday evening, like you're saying, and you're planning yeah. your week before, yeah. and you see you've got like an hour block, yeah. and you're like, I can do some good practice in here. Yeah. Like how would how would you plan before? Would you get like you say like yeah, two good question. tasks and then yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you what I'm practicing at the moment. I went for a lesson with Mike Walker a few months ago. Yeah. Um, 
and I went to him, I, I, my priority um, in my playing is time and hearing at the moment, it has been for, for quite a while. Um, and uh, I played for him, and he, you know, he saw through my playing within 30 seconds. And um, he, he, it was, it was, a, it was a transformative experience. Um, he told, he told me stuff with, within, within seconds of hearing me play. He told me stuff that I could be improved that I wasn't even aware of. And he made me a lot more honest about the stuff that I was aware of in my playing that I wanted to. Uh, develop, rectify, or, or you know, improve drastically things that I'm not happy about that I've, I suppose I've been um, covering up for. Yeah. Um, so uh, an interesting thing he said was to you know split your time with the metronome. Uh, 50-50 so whatever, however much time you spend with the metronome make sure you're spending at least that much t- much time without the metronome which is something I've never really done but that, that was that's, that's, I suppose that's one of my long term goals is being able to do the um, uh, you know the cadenza or intro thing that Chris Potter and Brecker do where you know they're like trains those guys you know the time is so strong there's such a sense of authority there um, and being able to improvise um you know, so beautiful, so melodically, and you know, harmonically clear and and, and, and rich, um, but with within this overall um, framework of, of being so groovy yeah. and and so strong and so consistent, um, and uh, so Mike said, "Well, you, you need to. You, it's obvious you need to start working without the metronome, then, um, and much more than you're doing." and um, so, so that so that's what I'm doing. So, and, and another thing was um, articulation. Um, so there was a bias in my playing uh, towards the upbeats in my eighth note lines. So I was tending to, to consistently accent the upbeats. Uh, so he said, you know, th- listen to Parker more more deeply. I've, I've done quite a lot of Parker transcription, um, but again, it wasn't really that. Um, conscious of the way that he articulates within the lines so where those accents are to give this texture within the eighth notes and stuff like that um, so Mike you know just said there's you know really simple exercises you know picking one downbeat within the bar say it's beat three for example so I've, I've been doing it with giant steps with a, with, a, with there's a Jamie Abbott slow giant steps and you know trying to play continuous eighth notes you know so I'm working on my you know line construction you know playing clear harmony but at the same time um, getting myself used to accenting places that I've been ignoring all these years and adding another level of richness to my to my improvising so you start off with that you know pick a you know pick a different beat every day you know different downbeat beat three one day beat four one day beat two one day um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll do like a little time thing and I play Cherokee with the click dropping out you know I use uh, I don't know if you know the Polynome app no, no, I don't. oh man fantastic a guy called Joe Crabtree is a drummer British right. drummer has developed this app called Polynome fabulous um, and it's really good for my polyrhythmic stuff that I'm working on as well because yeah. you can you can you can set up these playlists where um, you can uh, basically you can have really complex metric modulations um, based on things like quintuplets 
Um, exactly. And well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do a blog on this as well because unless he's already done an update on this, what I what I'd like him to do is um, do an update where the shifts are, are, are random between two statuses, if you like. So if I've, if I've got... So I do this one this one pattern I'm working on at the moment is a quintuplet thing, playing quintuplets in 4-4. Four, four. But then the modulation happens, so the quintuplet becomes eighth notes. So it's, so you, you, you go into 5-4 at a slower tempo, it yeah. feels like. Um, but the but the unifying rate is that is that is the quintuple. So it's um, and what I'd like is because I've got it set at the moment to a fixed amount, you know, eight bars of, of one and then two bars of five four of the other. And I'd, it'd be nice if it, if the, it would jump arbitrarily so you can get used to um, having the rug pulled from under your feet. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, and that for, is more like a live situation. Absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, you yeah. know, what, what, one of the my my pal that I work with um, that I'm making a record with at the moment. Um, Pete Zeldman, who's another hero of mine. You know, he's the world authority on polyrhythmic playing. And, you know, to playing with him, you've really, really got to dig your heels in because he can just manipulate the time in such mind-boggling ways that, you know, it's, it's very disorientating. So I'm, I'm, you know, baby steps with that is, to, is to, just to get used to the sort of basic metro modulations that drummers do. Um, yeah, because I saw in your blog that you're doing stuff with them. Have you got anything out between the two of you? That, or is it just like Not a yet. project for? It's it's an ongoing, long-term. Are you aiming project. to eventually record something? Well, we we started maybe? we started recording. Yeah, we're gonna we're oh, gonna great. we're gonna put it out. Um, and it's and it's it's crazy. Yeah, we and we've got we've got one. I mean, it's twenty minutes long. This trial, and we had Mike Mondesi come and play bass on it, and it's it's bonkers. Um, and but we're gonna we're gonna layer it up. It's it's all it's a piecemeal thing. You know, it all comes out of jam. Ja- like Pete, Pete has will have a concept based on either you know, displacement, metric modulation, um, or um, or polyrhythm, and. Uh, I'll come up with some sort of riff for it and um, we have these elaborate compositions that develop out of that but it's you know we, we want to keep it as as you know it's groove music but, but you know with a lot a lot of rhythmic yeah very sophisticated yeah, yeah yeah massively so um, that sounds incredible if it's one track's 20 minutes long yeah a lot yeah, there's it's it's it, it, there's a lot of stuff. Um, but you know that's why you know it's it's a big part of my practice, the rhythmic vocabulary thing and the time thing, because it has to be to play with him. Sure. Because he's very demanding of, of he wants it to be you know he, he, he can't budge because the illusions don't work then. Yeah. Um, the um, the modulations don't work if your sixteenth note isn't rigid. Bang on. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a ma- it's a massive challenge. Um, so yeah, with, with so with 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 the, with with the practice thing, I'll I'll flip between those those two type of things. I'll do like a, ry- a rhythmic type um, exercise with you know like one click per bar on like a sixteenth note upbeat or something like that, um, and 
then um, swap to like an articulation type exercise. But then with that though, it's you know you're actually improvising as well. Yeah. You know you're. Um, it's not just a cold academic exercise. You know that's that's I'm finding that quite challenging playing through something with a lot of changes like giant steps and you know. Um, Playing continuous eighth notes through it and making sure that you're, um, you know, articulating different places and maybe doing two articulations in a bar, one on, one off. Um, you know, alternating two bar phrases perhaps have, you know, the first bar is uh, beat two and the end of four, and then the second bar of, of, of that phrase do end of one and beat three. You know, try and do that, have that as a framework that the. Um, the improvisation because I mean, that's a real test of how um, internalised the changes are for you yeah because at the front of your mind is going to be this you know this um, this requirement to to play certain accents which means that you know the 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 uh, the, 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 the stuff in your you know, lower levels of consciousness are taking over there to, to deal with the, the harmonic and melodic yeah. aspect of the, of, of, of the playing. So it's like two things at once. Exactly. A jug, jug, yeah, juggling multiple balls, I think, is a really important thing for practice. Yeah. Cool. And it's more, and more efficient time-wise as well. Yeah, it's, it's much more of a challenge, but, you know, it, it you, you know, f- keeps you focused. Hmm. Do it in s- small, manageable chunks. And um, and you're saving time. Yeah. So you so you're obviously really into jazz now. And yeah. Like you say you're working on that a lot. Yeah. Um, and you went to you went to jazz college, right? Yeah, I went I went to I went to Trinity, and so I went off on a massive tangent there because I was I was going to say that the thing that led me to jazz was um, was the harmony used by guys like Satriani and more so Steve Vai. Um, uh, my my teacher at the time in Cardiff said, "Oh, if, you know, this this is modal harmony. Uh, you know, we should we need to we need to learn the modes and um, uh, start exploring these colours because these these this is this is what these guys use to improvise over. This is right. what they use to write with, and that necessarily led then to um, an exploration exploration of jazz. You know where." Um, so then you went to went to London to do jazz. Yeah, I went to Trinity for for two years. Were you, what kind of things were you like practicing while you were uh, bebop? Just straight up. Yeah. I know a lot of people like that's the first thing that you get like pushed towards when you go into college. I mean, yeah. From from my experience and other people's experiences, that's like the basis when you go to a jazz college. Yeah. Learn that. Yeah, because I felt, I felt totally overwhelmed and I fe- I felt like the poorest player. There, really. I mean, because I was totally new to it. Um, I'd, I'd started listening more. I'd started listening seriously during A levels, you know, lower sixth. There was an amazing teacher I had there called Adrian Colborn, um, who not only introduced me to to, to proper jazz recordings, um, but classical music as well. Um, which I'd never been interested in film music and and, and musicals mm. West Side Story in particular yeah. that was the gateway and again it was purely because Steve I says that, that, that West Side Story was one of his comes back to yeah absolutely um, you know he's, he cites Bernstein as being one of the one of the massive inspirations 
in in his writing, and you can hear it. You know, he's very fond of, of the Lydian sounds. You know, it's a colour that he uses huge amounts, and he and the link there is with Zappa as well. Zappa uses that sound a huge amount. Um, and yeah, he, he got that from Bernstein, from my side. So it's the it's the principal, you know, modal light motif of of, of, of West Side Story. You know, the, the tritone interval. Um, you know, in 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 the context of this Lydian harmony, like in Maria. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so I went, I, I went to Trinity. Um, they had this teacher-student jam session on day one, and I was too afraid to get up and play because everyone was, you know, playing really, you know, they were playing proper lines, you know, all this chromaticism and stuff like that that I'd never really explored. So um, that first year was, you know, spending all day Parker. I did I did loads of Parker transcriptions. Um, I the book that that really helped me was Joe Bagonzi's um, jazz line book about the, um, the, the I suppose the formal rules of chromaticism in in bebop um, and you know, hanging out with people that were much better than me and that then you know introducing me to records that I needed to check out and you know, slowly building up a, a record collection and yeah. and um, and becoming more and more obsessed with, with jazz. Right. So is it, jazz seems to be like, it's always been a kind of obsession for you. Well, from, from probably about the age of 16 or 17, and it, it you know, it, it, it was tentative to start off with. It was more an academic interest. Right. Um, I, fe- I, I felt no... Um, I wasn't moved by the music initially. Okay. Um, I was interested in music I was I was mystified by the colors harmonically that were used um, uh, because in my head I, I wanted to be able to write and play like Vi yeah you know so you're still doing you're still learning jazz with that end goal in mind yeah in a way yeah yeah absolutely and and the balance is tipped now where you know rock playing is still a huge part of my identity as a musician it's a huge part of my daily listening and it's I, I, I still find it joyous to listen to um, but it, it maybe part of it is that because I grew up with it and it's something that I gained facility with quite early on you know it feels natural whereas jazz is something I have to constantly work at because I came to it very late is that kind of why you're attracted to it? Because it's a challenge. Yeah, oh yeah, the, yeah. The challenge aspect of it is a massive attraction. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, and um, yeah. So for, I felt I, I I felt I caught up fairly quickly. Actually, um, that first year of Trinity was great, and it wasn't so much in the second year. Um, the, at, at that time, um, I was spending more time at the academy right. doing musical theatre stuff because they, they had. They, I think Trinity has a musical theatre department now. They didn't back then, and there were there were only two guitar players on the jazz course at the academy. Throughout the whole. Years. When I when um, when I was at Trinity, so this is two thousand two thousand and one, and. 
it was um, Werner Christensen. He was, a, he was such a lovely chap, man. He was um, he was lovely to me, and he was an amazing player, amazing player, um, a re real inspiration. And um, uh, Jakob Quiskards, who's yeah. amazing as well. He's a big, he's f famous player now. Um, uh, like he always wanted to be a rock guitar player and stuff. Although he was amazing at playing jazz and. Right. And everything, uh, and they weren't really interested in doing the musical theatre thing. Okay. So, um, so I, I used to go up there and do their theatre stuff, and there'd be guys from the jazz course going in and doing that. Guys like Tom Mason, who I met there, who's a phenomenal bass player. Yeah. Um, and you know, hanging out with those guys, and I, 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 I preferred the atmosphere there. Okay. And. I, I like the idea of being around those guys that were so much better than me, that were, you know, dragging me along and you know, really kicking me up the arse. And the work ethic there was different. I think that is a big thing, actually, from people, cause people that I know at Academy and, and well, since my time there and everything. Yeah. It's not that people like don't, don't work at the other colleges, but I know what you mean. Like academy seems to be like incredibly focused. Yeah. On everything. The else. work, the work ethic, generally in the jazz department. You know, but, but when I was there and prior to my being a student, there, me going up there purely as hired help to go and play in the in the, in the musicals that they put on. There. Um, most people on the course there were hard workers. Whereas when I was at Trinity, um, the work ethic was was generally slacker. That's there were there were massive exceptions there. Don't get me wrong. And also the numbers were larger as well. Uh, I think that's a that's a big part of it. But I mean, it's still a thing, isn't it? Like Rory Simmons was in my year, and I, I mean we we lived together for a bit which was hilarious like he worked his arse off he also parted his arse off as well um, but he was phenomenal Andy Davis you know but you know both those guys you know proper jazz trumpet players you know top top of the game you know they worked incredibly hard um, but there was, yeah, there, was a, there was a lot of mucking around there as well yeah that seems to be a big thing like putting in putting in the work obviously you need to put in the work like loads of people there's always exceptions of people that like, get picked up and do stuff yeah um, or like people like they supposedly don't need to practice as much and they still sound great or whatever but it yeah. does seem to be a, a thread that you just can't get away from like you you need to put in the work if you want to yeah. do it and then do you feel like it's important to put in the work at a younger age because there's people I talk to um, like Ralph Salmons has said that he reckons if you go to college and then until you're about 25-ish that's like the golden window of you can practice your arse off like all day do it and then after that point you're going to be busy because you're going to be good enough by that point oh I see so this is so what you're saying is that it's you, you hit a certain age and there's um, l normal life requirements that preclude the possibility of practicing to the degree yeah, that you can when you're in college. Yeah, I, th I think that's generally fair. Yeah, I, th I think I think that's true. Um, but it's but it, it, it's not hard and fast. I mean, it, you you can if you really want to be a world class jazz guitar player, 
shut yourself away for a few years and do what's required to be a world-class jazz guitar player. You can, you, in theory, you can do that at any age, but th there are caveats there, aren't there? I mean, you yeah. need to be independently wealthy, I suppose, if you're going to do that. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, so... You can't, you can't have to, you can't go and do a day job and, 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 and learn to be a player of, 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 of that calibre. Yeah. You know, so, although saying, saying that, the West Montgomery had a factory job apparently, and you know, with, with large family to support, you know, he still managed to get his practice in and become, you know, the best. Yeah, well, there's always exceptions. Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. But that's that's a big factor for uh, people people my age. I'm sure it's the same for you as well. Like, especially when you're in London because it's so expensive. There are like, you know. If you, if you, it's quite hard to financially support yourself yeah. while you're at college purely for your music. So I know a lot of people who have had to do other jobs. Now. Yeah. Would you, so you did you did two years at Trinity. I did two years at Trinity, and fortuitously I got a gig around the time that I was looking to sack college off. Are you already fed up with it after two years? Not not college in general, particularly Trinity. Right. I wasn't happy there, and I, I was uh, my, the idea was, all right, I'm going to transfer to the academy where I feel at home, and I'm sure. I'm going to maximise my potential there. Yeah. Uh, so I got this gig doing a touring show um, around the world. Great. It was yeah, it was it came at just the right time as well. Um, uh, my, my friend Matt McDonough who's a brilliant drummer uh, he suggested me for the gig this this is the guy that played drums in my audition at Trinity and I thought oh wow this guy is brilliant because he was into the funk thing as well and uh, great chops and stuff like that and when I turned up on day one, I was like, right, I need to find this guy because that's the guy I want to play with. And they yeah. said, oh, he's got these, he's buggered off, he's on tour, he's doing this gig, he's left college. Um, so I ended up playing with him, you know, he got me on this on this gig and it was brilliant for loads of reasons. Um, like Health-wise, it was great because, you know, two years of Trinity, it's a lot of drinking and, and, yeah. and messing around, all that sort of stuff. And I got really into the fitness thing because okay. uh, we had to dance on stage, you know, it was right. a stage show, you know, there was, you had to be physically very strong to do it. Full on every night. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's such an amazing experience to be away from home like that as well, because everything was taken care of. We did a couple of months at the Banff Arts Centre rehearsing this show. Right. Um, which is so beautiful. They have a jazz summit there that Dave Liebman runs every year. Um, it's up in up in the Canadian Rockies. Right. The most breathtaking scenery. Um, they've, got, they've got gym there, Olympic swimming pool. You live in these little chalets. Everything is done for you because the idea is that you know artists of, of all flavours, you know, submit a proposal to go there to work on a project. You have poets there, ballet dancers. Wow. You know, musicals will be there. Um, Sounds like artistic heaven. <laughs> it, well, it, it is, yeah, and you know, there's, you know, the, the food's great. You know, they they take care of all of that. There's an amazing library there. The, that that was the thing. You know, I, 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 I re that was my evenings off was there listening to records and getting into like American lit literature. Because okay. uh, again, this is you know, this is the early days of internet. You know, certainly before Spotify and things like that. So this this library of Banff 
they had a huge record collection. Um, loads of stuff that I, you know, had heard about that you couldn't get hold of, like a kid or, or you couldn't afford, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so that 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 was, that was beautiful. And going on tour, and um, I did loads of practice while I was away as well. You know, I got. Do you have a lot of time to practice like yeah. your schedule? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm not on the travel days so much, but um, um, especially if you've got... There were a few places where we had a week there or longer. Um, I think, no, New Zealand we had over a week. San Francisco we had over a week. Um, Singapore we had over a week. So there, I mean, go out and explore and enjoy all the lovely food and things like that. But you can get a good, solid day of practicing as well before going to do your show. You can, you know, train as well, do whatever, you know, physically what you're working on. And, um, so what, what kind of stuff were you practicing while you were on? What, I mean, what musically? What I, so the, the I, rem I remember. Oh, it was it was a real mixture of things. It was a Canadian stage show with loads of violins and stuff like that. So the, the, I suppose the core theme of it was like bluegrassy type okay. stuff but it was a real mixture of stuff there was a super tramp tune right. that we did um, there's a version of live and let die um, okay. so a mixture loads of different yeah. stuff rocky stuff a ballady acoustic stuff okay. there was this really difficult guitar feature um, which was which was like a bluegrass thing loads of alternate picking and um, a big steel string guitar it's really difficult to play really fun all like 16th note stuff yeah. um, there's a record actually this we, we, we met a there's a record of this thing if you, really? you, you can, yeah called? I think that it was called Vagabond Tales I think okay uh, the, the show was called Barrage um, we met we, we recorded the album in Banff at the recording studio there at the art centre oh, right. um, so it was, it, was, it, was, it was a really good show for, you know, for working, you know, the, your technique generally. You know, nice and broad, loads of different things. Um, uh, yeah, you couldn't, couldn't slack off. Right. So what were you practicing at the same time? I re so I, re I remember precisely what I did at this time. There was a pattern that I was working on. Um, uh, an arrhythmic grouping thing. Um, it, was, it was like um, uh, seventh arpeggios, diatonic sevenths, with different chromaticism, different chromatic approach tones and stuff like that to make it an arrhythmic grouping. So I was working on cool things with fives and sevens and stuff like okay. that. Uh, and I transcribed Chick Corea's uh, solo on Matrix. Right. You know, uh, uh, now he sings, now he sobs. Yeah. Um, and apart from that, uh, me and the drummer and the bass player, were any turn the room, we'd go and find jam sessions and stuff and go and try and play. You, you, more like funk things than standards yeah. and stuff. But we'd, you know, we'd play to get practice together away from the show. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, jazz, jazz language stuff. It was it was transcription and technique. Yeah. I was I was working on a lot then. Right. Um, so how long how long were you away for? for how long was it? Talking? Nine months in total, including the rehearsal time. Right. Fairly fairly long time. Then. Yeah. So pretty pretty much the year. Did you go back to education as soon as you? No, I got I got back and I got a a uh, a. a, a touring show here in the UK um, The Who's Tommy, the rock right. opera oh, okay. so I did that for a 
can't remember how long that was, eight months, something like that. And then went and then went into third year at the academy. Right. So even after you'd done like essentially two years. It was longer I think it was closer to three in the end. Three years of like yeah. time work. Yeah. Um, you still felt like you wanted to go back. That was all that was always the aim and it ne- that never left me. And I I'd do it again happily. Right. So academy so you went back to academy. Yeah. So that was, that was where you wanted to go. Yeah. And then was it still a four year course at that point? Well what I did was the idea was for me to do um, to pick up where I left off, so go into the do the third and fourth year, graduate, get the degree. But um, Gerard Presenter, who's head of the head of the course back then, he said, "Why don't you do the dip- the old style diploma two years? Because you can pick and choose the modules that you want to do, and you don't have to do any of the written work. So you can you can keep it you know keep it quiet, but you know you can have your freelance career and you know get qualification." Right. Which was this? Which was brilliant, and yeah, I would yeah. recommend that to anyone, especially if you're working already. Um, Did you find that quite hard to mix the two, like working not, for, with your stuff for academy? Not really, because I got because I got, I remember I'd, I'd been away for quite a long time. Started at the academy, and I didn't have any gigs. I was skins as well. It was you know it was it was hard because you know three years of living it up. And going back to being not just a student, but a student that was, you know, three or four years older than everyone else, that was, um, that was acclimatised to a higher standard of living, and I was back, back to, you know, proper poor student um, territory. But that was, you know, that was, it was good, you know, it focused the mind and, um, uh, yeah, it was, it, there was less distraction, I suppose. Sure. That way, um, and I, you know, I really got the the most the most out of it. So what happened? I feel like this is this is like a really crucial stage. I mean, it's the stage that I'm currently at as well. Yeah. Is like when, as a student, when you leave college. Yeah. There's a lot of people I know that are finding it very it's very tough switching from being a student to being a proper freelance professional. Yeah. And I mean, my view of it is that like I've I've been kind of splitting myself. Like having a freelance career and doing college for, for the four years, trying yes. to build up. So at this stage, I'm kind of in, a, in quite a good position. But I know a lot yeah. of people are a little bit like you were saying, like really focused on, on their stuff while they're at college, and then yeah. when they leave college, yeah, find it quite hard. So what position were you in after having finished academy? Like, oh well, I was. What I was. For the next couple of months? I was in an uncommonly strong position because. I was doing a West End show that, that I started before I finished. Oh, right. So were you still doing all the stuff at Academy, like the musical theatre stuff like you said you were doing? Yeah, before? absolutely. Well, Mary Hammond, who used to be head of the course, she wrote my reference to go to the Academy. Right. You know, that was my repayment for, for, for playing for them over yeah. the years. Um, I mean, the repayment really was the networking and, and learning the art of... Know, playing that type of music and being able to read it and follow a conductor it was super super valuable and I encourage my students to to approach places like the Academy Theatre Department or any you know institution that has 
um, that puts on productions, even if it's like amateur dramatic societies, and volunteer yourself for their productions. Don't do it for free. You know, at least get your expenses covered. But you know, bear in mind you're not gonna you're not gonna make a lot of money doing this. But that's where you learn your craft. That's interesting that you say that. Like, so you you're always very into theatre, and obviously you've done a lot of theatre production since leaving. Yeah, I I I, I never knew that it was a viable option as a teenager. Even I suppose when I got to A level, so the, this guy I was talking about, Adrian Colborn, that introduced me to musicals, I would never have even entertained the idea of listening to a musical. Um, but he was into really classy, so was Sondheim and, and Bernstein and stuff like that. You know, amazing tunes, ma- amazing orchestrations, uh, be- beautiful music. But I didn't realise that that was an actual viable career option in London. I didn't realise. Um, but that was one of the lessons I learned. And it was, I suppose one of the, the, the silver lining of, um, of the death of the traditional session industry is that when, uh, when the studios died, when that, when that scene um, fell apart, there was a migration of those players to the West End. You know, you follow the money. So consequently, you know, the standards of playing shot through the roof. You know, and that's why those jobs are, are, are you know, it's, they're very much the holy grail of, of, of jobs for jobbing musicians now. And I've, not- I've noticed it over the last couple of years of teaching where... Um, I've come across students now whose sole aim now after after a you know three year course of study is to end up in the West End playing musicals. I don't think that's healthy, but it's but it's a sign of it's a sign of the times. The, yeah. it's, 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 it's I think it's economics and 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 of course the fact that you know there are exceptionally good players doing that line of work now because it's because it's so well paid, it's consistent ish. <laughs> It's the, it's, it's the most regular thing you're going to get apart from teaching as a jobbing musician um, so the, I, can, I can understand that there's a lot of interest in that line of work now yeah um, there's so much money in the, the whole theatre business it seems to have grown like you say exponentially in recent years yeah, yes and no so their profits increase every year yeah it's humongous so I think in, so 2008 you know the the the, the, the financial crash. I think the West End, like straight theatre as well. I think it was something like half a billion in profits. It was announced. It was huge. It's an economic downturn. Is good news for theatre. You know, people. I, I don't understand the, the the mechanisms here, but you know, one theory is that you know instead of going out every night and chipping away at a few pints, people will save up now for one special night out in the theatre when, when, when times are hard. But even then, like, the tickets for certain shows are, like, like you were saying earlier... It's so expensive. Really expensive. Yeah, prohibitively expensive, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a huge business. So, yeah, the, so the people that own the shows are making a packet. Yeah. But bear in mind that they try to make the bands smaller and smaller every year. You know, there, there are exceptions that, you know, I think you know, 42nd Street is a large 
band, you know, I think as it was originally intended. Yeah. You know, our show is relatively big by today's standards. That's nine players. And that's considered quite big. Yeah, ten years ago, you know, that was the norm. You know, so it it is getting smaller because you know that's you know that's 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 the reality of the economics. You know, there'll be a bean counter that's you know if he's if he's worth his money he'll be looking at these spreadsheets and, and not thinking oh that that's a human being's livelihood there all he sees is numbers and his job is to is to maximize profits for the producer which which necessarily means keeping the bands as small as possible but then on the flip side of that the, the payment for the bands is actually like you're saying one of the best it is but it, you can get as a yeah it is um, but again don't forget that there's the person paying you is fighting to keep that as low as possible. Right. So the, every year there's this the prolonged, you know, not not just um, not just polite discussion, but arguments about the terms of our contracts and how much we should be paid. You know, it's a constant battle. Yeah. Um, and understandably, you know, it's it's you know it's business, we, that's business. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So. Um, it's it's not to be taken for granted. The the people that are paying you aren't your they're, they're not benefactors. They don't want to pay you that money. Um, and I'd imagine they don't think you're worth that much. Um, the cynic in me says that. Um, and they want more from you every year. Um, yeah. So has it? Does it fluctuate? You've done it for a number of years now. Have you seen it fluctuate, or is it going well, in one direction? Well, I've, I've, I've been on Book of Mormon for four and a half years now, and the good thing about having being on a, on a show that runs for a long time is that the money does go up every year. Oh, right. it, it, it won't go down. Um, it, it, there are, so there are exceptions. I heard that the Jersey Boys band. I, I used to do that gig when it was originally at the Prince Edward Theatre. That's that's the most money I've ever made on the show, and it's probably the most money I will ever make on the show. Why was that? Uh, because I, I was not only was I playing the maximum four instruments. There's a cap on the doubles that you can yeah. you can do, and you were handsomely paid for that anyway. But the guitarists uh, had to um, go on stage in emergencies and play the second drum kit pass. Oh, is that? I wondered because I saw the show. There was two drummers. Yeah, so it's an act a musician that does it but if he's off for whatever reason if he's sick or if he's on holiday yeah. then guitar two goes up and plays drums two so there's a supplementary fee for that costume fee yeah and there's also a scene uh, like an italian restaurant scene where one of the waiters plays a mandolin again it's an actor musician they can't get all of them to all of the understudies to learn that yeah. so you play it from the pit if he's off so there's another supplementary fee for that okay. so on top of your basic you know, if, if, if those two people are on holiday, you're playing mandolin and drums for a week, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good earning. But, this is the thing, that when that show moved from that theatre to the Piccadilly Theatre, I think they were very naughty, and they ended the contracts, started new contracts, which means there was a, like a, effectively a renegotiated lower fee. Right. Um, so this must happen like all over the place. Well, I think it's it's it's, it's, it's so it's more common on tours. I think. Okay. Have you ever done any tours? Yeah. Well, the I, the only one I did was that um, Tommy. Yeah. 
Uh, that's the only UK tour I've done. But you've been so you've been in town ever since. Pretty pretty much. I've been. Mean, it hasn't been consistent. Yeah. I've, it, there's been you know gaps of you know three years of, of, of not having a show of my own and you know dapping for people. Right. Um, yeah. So be, before before Mormon, I had three years of dapping. Um, uh, and the show I did before that was uh, a brief stint of hair at the Gilgood. Yeah. Where I played with Neil Wilkinson. You know Neil, drummer? Yeah. Oh, man. My <laughs> favourite drummer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's the best guy. And he's just, and he's just, man, we've been talking about, you know, just learning stuff and hanging out with people. He's he's your man. Really? To tell you about records to listen to and what, you know, he'll point things out to you that. Is he, on, is he on something at the moment? Well, he's he was doing, um, um, oh, what's it bloody calls? He was doing Beautiful. He was doing Beautiful, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we had the, uh, I can't remember who, his name now, the, the Keys MD from Beautiful. But he came into Guildhall and he literally said the same thing. He was like, this guy is like, it's just like a, a record swap every yeah. every week they go in and just gives us so much stuff. Yeah. And he was like, that's like one of the main things, like one of the best things about being on the show. Yeah. Is that. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's just like we were saying, like talking to people and then you saying, like, and that's, you get to listen to as well. That's, I think that's something that I look for in, you, you can all, you, so you can always tell the people that are super serious are the ones that are always talking about music and Neil's really interesting because he doesn't really talk about drums that much you know if you first if you, if you first met him and he didn't know who he was you, you probably wouldn't know that he was a drummer but he, but he would talk he just talks about records he talks about listening I think his his thing is listening he's a deep listener spends all his time listening and loving being a listener and that's why he's got such a wealth of he's got he's got this library this encyclopedia in his head of of, of everything yeah you know and he can and he can read and he's got the, the facility you know honed over decades to, to to recreate all of that and in permutations of everything and that's why that's why he's the ultimate studio player but then, like you're saying, like a lot of the studio guys, they're now in the West End, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like I know from because I've done quite a few Amgram stuff as well. Yeah. Like, I'm quite interested in all that stuff. I'd love to do it one day. Yeah. But it's like you were saying before. There's there's so many extra skills that you don't learn in any other area. I don't think. Yeah. Because like you've got to be able to read. Yeah. One thing major. You've got to be able to follow. And I like, just you've got to stay focused. I think that's and, that. Like, yeah. So many things. Yeah. So the following thing is more important than the reading because. There's, I think there's a, there's a bit of a misconception about the the, the the essential nature of reading in um, in theatre. Because if you're a deaf, or if it's your gig and you'll send the music in advance, you don't necessarily have to be able to read music to go and do that. I just don't think it's particularly safe because if something goes wrong during a show and the MD has to shout bar numbers to you. If you don't know where you are, if you're doing it off the book, yeah. or even if you, were, you know, someone pointed to where you are on the page and you can't read music, you're fucked. Yeah. You know, you'd have to pick it up where you where you hear it. Do you know people who do that? They literally like... I know one guy. And he does it effectively enough to... Yeah. yeah. That's quite incredible. A skill to have, I would imagine. Yeah, to I know, learn I know, a whole show. Yeah, I know, I know one, one guy... Um, 
who does it that way. The mo- most people are fairly strong readers. Yeah. Especially remember that as as I say, you know, this is you know the the, the guys that are doing it. You know, a lot of them, you know, migrated over from being full-time studio players, where you know, reading is is essential. That yeah. that's where you can't um, n- you can't not be a reader. Well, it, again, there's there are exceptions, of course. If you're do if you're making pop records, you know, like you know, Lukather playing on Thriller and stuff like that, or a Boz Skaggs record. I doubt there's going to be any written music for that. Yeah. That sort of thing. They go in and they, you know, they'll do a quick takedown of, of what they've got already, or someone will shout some chords at him, or you know, he just hears it and, he, and yeah. it pours out of him. But that, you know, that again is you don't like have to be able to read. Such a skill to have, like I'm sure not many people actually have the skill to that level yeah. to be able to go into the studio and listen to something once and then. Yeah. But again, I think it's you know, if you, if you do it for ten years and you're doing it six days a week. Mm out of necessity you're going to get good at it in the same way that you know like an editor um, out of necessity will get good at reading things fast you know speed reading if you've got to read you know every newspaper you know a load of magazines and five novels in a week you know, you, you you end up being fast. Yeah, yeah. You know, out of out of necessity, and it's, I think it's the same thing with the studio world. I think that's I think it's why you know it's, it's certainly a huge contributing factor to um, the skill set that Luke has or Jay Graydon has, even though they have very different approaches. Mm. You know, spending all that time in the studio listening to yourself. You know, yeah. I think you've, you know, ten, ten years of, um, it's effectively research and development, isn't it? Mm. You know, you, you go and play on someone's record, you, you put you lay a track down, you go and listen to it, you know, you have that objective um, perspective then. Yeah. Oh, that works, that doesn't, and then f- formulating these little rules for yourself, you know, these, and you, and you can see it in their playing. Mm. You know, there, there's a formula, certainly with Jay Grade. Right. You know, this, he knows that there are things that just work in certain yeah. contexts and they become effectively they become licks you know templates mm. my idea is I teach a class on this at, at LCCM and I'm going to do a guilt hall next year with some of the guitar great yeah because yeah. I know that's a big thing like um, loads of people hate listening to themselves when they initially start doing it because when you when you record yourself yeah. it's, it's so blindingly obvious where your like your weaknesses are but then yeah. like because I started doing it just for the last year of college yeah. and like it's, it's, just, it's so beneficial I mean do you do, you do it for yourself every day yeah it has to be a core component of your playing because no, it's the yeah. only it's it's the only way to be objective about your playing mm. I'm not aware of things while I'm in the acts you know and, and, and it's interesting how it flips as well there's this I, I, I tend to find that the things that I think are shit actually don't sound that bad and the things that I sound, think that sound good really aren't cutting it right. when I'm in the acts and, and it's only listening back to it that you'll realise that so I mean that, that's why I've got you know, a basic home recording setup is to record myself doing stuff so I can really um, really really work out what I'm getting right and what I'm not doing it yeah. so, so well and and what things work as well you know yeah. and it's, it's a lot easier to do it these days as well isn't it like you can microphones aren't massively expensive yeah. like the ones you need or like you, you can just plug straight in if I'm, if I'm away from home just use voice memo recorder on my phone yeah exactly there you go Yeah. you know you have to turn your whatever metronome 
you've got going on right down just play acoustically and you know record three minutes of your playing yeah. listen to it make some notes it's, that's 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 that three minutes is better than an hour of sl slogging away at trying to get through 12 keys of a monumentally difficult pattern yeah yeah yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's really important. Um, but going back to the West End stuff. Yeah. So you got into it through going through academy, like you say, yeah. and then like knowing people that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, on, on your blog, I know you said you haven't done a lot of stuff on it recently, but yeah. you specifically said that you um, you like having students that are aiming towards the West End. I think you said something like that. And you said something. There's something on there about having an edge over certain people. Like what kind of oh, things? Right. Okay. What kind of things do you so think I, people I, should be doing if they want to get into that kind of stuff? Well, it's. I think the, what I said was, and the way I phrased it was that, you know, I've got you know, a relatively unique insight on the skills required to do that sort of job. And you know, it's you know, if if you're interested in doing that work, then it's worth getting in touch with me, or you know, reading the blog and stuff, uh, because I can give you a few valuable tips, I think. Yeah. Um, and man, there's, this is a whole world of, of, of stuff here. But I mean, what 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 do you want to hear first? You want to hear about like, getting into that sort of work, like how it? I mean, yeah, I mean, let's let's start there, like, because I know there's no specific, there's no path into yeah, like any job, but especially the West End, like yeah. Um, but it seems from the outside, it seems like once you're in, you're you're in. If you do a good job, you can do. But I don't know how. Do, yeah, how there are there are other like there are other get in in the first place. There are other elements to it as well. So there's. It's it's a mixture of your ability as a player and you as a personality. Right. Um, it's obviously you have to be as good as you can be, and the sort of skills that are essential to that job. You, I think by and large you have to learn on the job, which is why I suggest people um, to get in touch with. You know, colleges, universities, Amdram societies, and volunteer themselves to go and learn it on the job. Um, it's it's process oriented learning. The only the only way that you're going to learn um, how to to follow a conductor is by following conductors. You know, good ones and bad ones. Um, people that do things you know, very very differently. But you know, over time, seeing the general patterns—that um, I think that's the that's that's the core essential thing. Um, you need to. I think. I think another thing as well is being aware that there's there is a general path that people do before you end up in the West End, and it's you know it's this old school idea of paying your dues. So, you know, don't expect to land a West End gig, even if you're brilliant and you know a really top guy. If you if you've never gone out and slogged it doing function gigs for yeah. for years, and um, you know a normal jobbing, you know humble, you know soft, solid working life as a musician. You know that that's that's super important. You make loads of contacts doing that as well. Um, you know that that work isn't 
um, as as prevalent as it used to be. Um, you know, and then amazing players that do it because, you know, especially when we don't have a show. You know, if you're low on geeks, you know, you, and you're out doing, you know, like a regular function thing, then you know you, you're going to come across people that are doing shows, um, depth on things who will recommend you for stuff. So you know, that's that's it's a general networking thing. Um, so you think that's like the networking thing is a big? I think, I think well, it, you've got yeah. this. I suppose this type, this links in with the personality thing as well. You've got to be careful how you approach that thought, sort of thing because in this country, like the hustle isn't isn't really the dumb thing. I think you've got to be you've got to be a little bit political with with that. You've got to you've got to be a bit cool with how you approach that sort of thing. So you know, be around. You know, a lot a lot of these things will. A lot of these things will get hooked up in the pub, I think. Really? Yeah, I think so. You know, when you'll be you'll be introduced to people. You know, it's it, that's much better than um, you know cold calling someone and saying, "Oh, can I come and sit in your on your show?" Or you yeah. know, you need an adept, that that sort of thing. Um, that's I, by and large, that's not going to work. I think it's I think it's fair to say that. Um, you know, just calling a player up and saying, "Can I come depth for you?" Especially if you've got no experience, it's, it, that's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But you know, if you're out, you know, slogging away, you know, be, be, being in, in town doing doing gigs, whatever they are, and you know, you eventually you'll you'll, you'll get introduced to these people, and they'll be you know a, a friendly thing, and um, and you, you can t- you can take it from there. Then you can at least you know then you can you know ask about you know sitting in you just watch it just out of out of interest yeah. you know without you know be, be sure to state that it's you know just not with a view to come in depth for you or anything like that it's you know I just want to come and hear you play and, and see the show and stuff like that because yeah. that in itself is a really valuable learning experience like if you've never seen um like a, a, a pit you know you've never you've never seen how it works that thing then man it's, I encourage all my students to come and sit and see what see what it's like because they you know at worst you might find out that you fucking hate it and you don't want anything to do with it that's a, that's a good thing to know isn't it yeah, yeah and then um, you're not chasing it but, it but it might be massively inspiring you know and you're going to learn loads of stuff from that as well you know seeing the conductor seeing how everyone behaves yeah yeah, it's interesting to say about the personality because when I talked to Jim Knight, we, we had a long discussion about the personality thing. Yeah. Because he thinks it's like mega important as well. So we're talking about the, yeah. the kind of the link between your personality and then like your your like playing your, yes. your voice with your playing and like yeah. how how they're really linked. And they're like, you know, you've got to hang around like with shows. You've got to hang around with people. Yeah. In between shows or like either side of it for like hours. Yeah. So if you don't get on with people. Yeah. It's a big thing. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, I suppose the general thing to take from that is don't, don't be pushy. Um, the, 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 it'll, it'll come to you if, if all of the other things are observed. You, you just have to, you have to play the game a bit. You have to wait. You have to wait your turn and thing. So, yeah, you make, sure, make sure you're doing, you know, tons of functions. Just playing with people. You know, that's where you're learning your, your crafts and paying your dues. Um, the massive help for me was Nigel. Right. Massive, not just not just because of the skill set thing, but because you know every generation of that band, 
you know, any, anyone that's working in, in town or doing recordings and stuff like that has had some sort of connection with that band. Right. You know, so I say to all my students, although I know the, the whole setup has changed now. You yeah, know, it's, tr- like, it's tr- a bit revamped. Yeah. yeah, and there's auditions and stuff, and it's, all, it's, a, it's a lot more systematic now. Uh, it wasn't like that in my day, you know, you just turned up on Saturday morning and Bill would corner you, Bill Ashton that is, uh, the guy that used to run the band. And, you know, he'd tell the player there, so that's why I like, first met Adam Goldsmith, just, you know, terrified one day turning up. Bill saying, who, who are you, grilling you, you know, I'm a guitar player, want to come and play. And he'd go and he'd say to Adam, there's a guitar player here. And, Adam, you know, Adam would be, you know, playing the polka rehearsal, and then he'd look around and say, right, your turn. Yeah. And you've got to get up and sight me or something with the band. It's terrifying. Yeah. But it, does, it doesn't get any harder now, I don't think. You know, it's, that, that's... It does seem to be like a, a kind of breeding ground for. Yes. Like, yeah, it's really important so to that, go through. That's another massive piece of the puzzle, I think, that puts you in a really strong position. Um, uh, not least because of the social thing. You know, yeah. it's, you know those, those guys, you know, they're all you know, touring shows, West End shows, same as all of us, a mixture of everything. Yeah. Um, and. They will introduce you to people. They will suggest you for things. Um, and the other thing to remember as well, you know, is, is getting on, to, de- depping first of all on touring shows. You know, right. that's that's a that's a prior step. That's like the first step. Yeah, not, I mean, again, not necessarily. There, there are exceptions. You know, some some guys are just brilliant and have proved their worth very early on and have bypassed things but that's, so, that's super rare right super super rare but you usually you know they've, they've still you know slogged away for a long time doing you know bread and butter gigs yeah um, I think a lot of people are quite impatient especially after understandably. leaving college understandably exactly yeah yeah I, I, I was um, but it didn't, didn't take that that long you know, yes, I was 24, 25 when I got my first West End gig. It was, you know, all, it was only like eight or nine weeks of Rocky Horror Show at the Comedy Theatre over yeah. Christmas period while I was in my while I was at the academy. Um, but you know, that was a big deal. That was brilliant. Yeah, yeah you know, and it paid for. I bought a lot of great gear with that as well. Yeah. Cool. Well. Shall we just end with a few quick questions? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So, uh, talking about gear, what yeah. kind of what kind of gear do you use or like recommend? Um, it, 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 I can't really recommend anything specifically because everyone is different. Um, I, for me personally, I'm a Stratocaster type guitar player predominantly. Um, that's the guitar that I was. I was first obsessed with as a child. You know, I used to draw pictures of Stratocasters. I, I loved, you know, just looking at pictures of the guitars that you know, Clapton and Hendrix used and Richie Blackmore. Um, I still think they're the most beautiful instrument there. And it's, you know, I formed my technique around that instrument. You know, there's a relationship between me and that that guitar. So that's where, you know, the, the foundation of my technique was was built. Um, and I think then there's still incredibly versatile instruments. I think it's a, it's it's a core requirement of your arsenal of guitars if you're going to do you know if you're a general jobbing guitar player. Um, so uh, this is a, this is biased, but I would say that that's you know that's that's the guitar. That is that is the one. Yeah. Um, other people disagree. You know, I know people that don't like Stratocasters. That 
I think you know, Adam Goldsmith likes Les Pauls and um, other guys like Telecasters and things like that. Absolutely fine, amazing. They all do different things. I mean, you, you, gear, you need to have everything. You need to have two of everything at least, right. really. Um, uh, yeah, that's 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 essential because you know if you, you different jobs require different things and you need a backup. I was going to say, do you, so do you get asked to use specific things? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. not always, but yeah, some people will specify you need less pull for this. So you do need to have the whole range. Yeah, of yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, gear wise, um, uh, digital's big thing now. So for home setups and just for conveniency for flying as well, uh, Kemper and modelling. Or XFX, it's, that's they're the two lead industry standards units, I suppose. We use XFX on the show. Um, amazing bit of kit. Um, I prefer the Kemper. I think it sounds slightly better. Doesn't doesn't have the same options effects wise though, um, but uh, I think it's more realistic sounding Kemper. Yeah. Uh, so either of those or both. Uh, and uh, standard effects wise you need the full uh, spectrum of, of, of things really but at the core of it is going to be you know various distortion pedals that's that's what you'll have most of as a guitar player right. um, guitar players are notorious for collecting these things you know buying them plugging them in trying them once and not ever using them on a gig or anything but they're, my favourites are um, probably in this order um, the Analog Man King of Tone I think it's a phenomenal pedal, and the exotic BB preamp, the orange one, it's a high gain-ish distortion pedal. Uh, they're beautiful, but there's millions of others, yeah. obviously. But have everything you need—a tube screamer type thing, um, either for getting like a Stephen Ray Vaughan type sound, or for um, turning the output right up and the uh, distortion level right down, and putting that in front of a loud Marshall for the 80s cock rock you know, full on compressed yeah. distorted sound um, you need some sort of chorusing sound um, there's millions of, of those on the market um, uh, I like the Eventide stuff and the Strymon stuff uh, although I've got the one like the pedal the small pedal form that I use most is the Analog Man bi-chorus uh, volume pedal essential especially for studio and um uh, theatre stuff uh, again there's loads of those I like the Vertex ones uh, I bought it purely because Larry Carlton and Landau and those guys use it uh, and it's really solid and um, really transparent it doesn't suck a lot of tone from the signal um, and delays you know TC Electronic Eventide Strymon uh, the main ones there um, some sort of oh man there's lo- loads of them. F- you know phaser flanger uh, some sort of tremolo type effect I mean that's the, that's the core really but as f- f- I try and keep it as simple as possible yeah. for me I'll have, if I can I'll go and do a gig with just a distortion volume pedal and delay yeah if I can. That's what we need. Yeah, I think so. Great. So, do you have any recommended listening at all? Like, favourite oh, albums? man, yeah. Wow. Well, um, I mean, I know that's low. Just anything you're listening to at the moment? Uh, Two or three things? Uh, Michael Brecker. Uh, the album Michael Brecker. Um, uh, uh, Meshuggah. I Am Coloss. 
No, I think the album's just called Coloss. Mm. Um, uh, what have I been listening to recently? Uh, Al Jarreau, Jarreau Records, and Breaking Away. Those two are my favourite ones. Um, let's have a look here. It's pretty the easiest way to answer this is just to show you what I've been listening to recently. Oh, S- uh, Sergio Mendes. Uh, Brasileiro oh, yeah, Mark yeah. Memerson told me about that record um, uh, 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 oh Bob Bergen on the standards I really like that record yes um, yeah I listened to that like three years ago yeah um, Gary Novak ridiculous uh, Dave Kikoski mm. uh, Pete Bernstein the new Pete Bernstein record live record with Brad Maldow um, Stevie Wonder uh, oh Lawrence Cottle Quintet live with Gerard um, Ian Thomas um, oh Whitesnake Slip the Tongue you know that record we buy David Coverdale oh man wicked cock rock at its best Um, oh Holy Diver Dio Amazing, you know that record? No, no. Oh man, Check amazing. Yeah, Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, um, I think Laurie played in Black Sabbath when Dio was the singer. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. yeah he made a record with him. Yeah. Um, oh, Parker with strings. Oh yeah, amazing. Thriller. Classic. Yeah, yeah. Lucifer on that man, killing. Right, well, you always listen to a lot of stuff. Yeah, oh man, loads and loads of stuff. David Hazeltine, Modern Standards, that's a lovely record. Oh man, for guitar, well, anyone, really. John Harrington's Time on My Hands. Okay. Love that record, man, that's incredible. Uh, Kenny Garrett, Pursuance, mm. the Coltrane record he made. Oh man, Winton, Black Codes, mid 80s. Oh, I love that album. Kenny Kirkland. It's very yeah. underappreciated, that one. Oh man, I, I made an album a couple of months ago, jazz records, with right. Graham Flowers. Chris Nichols, Mark Rose, and we did um, an arrangement of Delphire's Dilemma from that record. Really? Yeah. Great. Uh, oh man, James Taylor. Oh, my favourite. Yeah, Every day, yeah. James Taylor, man. Every day, I listen to James Taylor. Love yeah. Brecker Bre- Bre- and James Taylor. Yeah. Which, which your favourite James Taylor album? Oh, for me, October Road, I think. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I prefer you know, Hourglass. Oh, man, that's, that's up there as well for me. I yeah. think the only reason I'd choose October Road is because that was my first proper experience of listening to a full Taylor record. Really? Oh, yeah. right. The only thing that sways it for me is that there's a Christmas tune on October oh, Road. Oh, <laughs> man, yeah. It, the, the, on the, the B-sides. Yeah. Um, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Mm. It's Russell Malone. Oh, really? Playing guitar with him, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great, but just because he's got a Christmas tune means I can't listen to it. <laughs> That's the best Christmas tune ever, though, man. That's a fabulous Very And the way, he, the way he sings it is fabulous. Mm. Um, yeah, man, there's, ton, there's tons of stuff I listen to. It's, yeah, it's, ma- it's mainly, you know, like jazz, Coltrane, Brecker, Bob Berg, um, uh, Jerry Bigonzi, Brad Maldow, uh, Chick, um, Dave Kukoski I love, Kenny Kirkland I love, um, and metal and rock stuff, and classical music as well. Um, I just got a wicked recording of um, Martha Argerich playing the Prokofiev piano concerto number three I think the famous one okay that's ridiculous I'm on that same it's Deutsche Gramophone um, and it's got her playing Gaspar as well do you know that Um, Ravel 
Oh, Gaspar de Nui. Oh, man, beautiful. There's, my favourite bit is um, uh, uh, Le Gibe, the gallows. Okay. It's got this death toll at the beginning. And the, but the, the harmony, the beginning thing, it's got this thing in fifths that moved down a major third, I think. And it's, it's, it sounds like new metal. Really? It's the thing that new metal bands use all the time. Right. Yeah, That's um, really interesting. Yeah, so, so um, a quintal thing, like two fifths, less so like something like um, A, E, B. Um, uh, that moved down a major third. That sort of sound. You hear that a lot in new, new metal. Um, and it's got this, and then this thing in the middle of it sounds like early Ellington. Like proper like jazz chords. There's this cycle thing, and, and loads of diminished stuff as well. Right. Really colourful, diminished stuff. So it's it's like early jazz. Wow, it's incredible. You I know, definitely had to. Yeah, it's to that. phenomenal. Yeah, it's yeah. really spooky. <laughs> it's, it's weird good. how they all link together. Yeah, it? it's, it's so strange. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been it's been incredible to hear what you, everything you've got to say about everything. Great. I, mean, I hope I kept on topic. I, get too excited and ramble about these things sometimes. Oh no, not at all. That's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> hear all about it. Thank you for listening to the Tom Hutch Podcast. I really appreciate you giving your time. I hope you enjoyed this talk with Tommy as much as I did. You can find him on Twitter or Instagram at Tommy Emerton or you can check his blog out at tommyemerton.com to see all the stuff that he's doing. If you want to check out the show notes or download a transcription of this episode, you can head over to tomhutchmusic.com forward slash podcast and find it all there. If you like this episode, please give it a rating or review. I'd very much appreciate it. And if you have any ideas of guests that you would like to hear from or questions that you'd like me to ask, then please get in touch with me personally at tlhutchmusic at gmail.com or on social media at tlhutchmusic. Thanks for now, and I'll see you in the next one.